Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Over the past century, black land owners in the U.S. South have lost over 12 million acres of farmland, mostly from the 1950s onward, according to The Atlantic. Joe Brooks, the former president of the Emergency Land Fund, a group founded in 1972 to fight the problem of dispossession, estimated that about 6 million acres were lost by black farmers between 1950 to 1969 alone. Black-owned cotton farms in the U.S. South have almost completely disappeared, withering away from 87,000 to just over 3,000 in the 1960s alone. The disparity increased in Mississippi from 1950 to 1954 when Black farmers lost almost 80,000 acres of land, this according to the census of agriculture. The land loss is also a financial loss estimated to be around $3.7 billion to $6.6 billion in today's dollars. And today only 1.3% of U.S. farmers are black, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, Black farmers pushed back uh, the, in, in 2010, the National Black Farmers Association held a demonstration in Washington, D.C., uh, where they drove tractors to demand justice. A similar tractor protest was mobilized by the National Black Farmers Association in 2002. Under the Trump uh, administration and during the height of the COVID-19 virus, only 0.1% of pandemic relief funding to help U.S. farmers uh, that to black farmers, this according to the Washington Post. And you fast forward to 2021, under the presidency of Joe Biden, part of his American Rescue Plan Act, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue uh, Plan Act, um, included uh, some money to help to remediate this historic injustice against uh, black farmers. However, White farmers are are pushing back, including some people in the former Trump administration that have now sued to withhold this money. We're going to spend the hour digging deep into all of this. Our guests are Keisha Stokes, who senior supervising attorney with the Economic Justice Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, Lorette Fischiano, executive director of the Rural Coalition, and John Zifford, who has a long history in this. He worked for 50 years with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund at their Rural Training and Research Center near Epps, Alabama. But uh, let us go to a clip now. about the loan forgiveness for black farmers. It was based on a 1990 law in which socially disadvantaged farmer was defined based on race and ethnicity. So it's really critically important to understand that it's very targeted, very specific, and it addresses the disparity between white farmers who received a tremendous amount of money during the COVID relief situation and socially disadvantaged producers who received relatively speaking, very, very little. Disadvantage means more than black. And so if you look at the reports of this, uh, we deal with all of the farmers who did not get, who were not treated fairly when the loans were there. So any white farmer that can show that he or she were not treated fairly, they are included. 
This is to right a wrong. Well, I've been disadvantaged that kills my, killed my spirit years ago when I tried to get a loan and was turned down because of simple reasons. This loan would help me for some of the things that I've already spent my personal money on and things I would like to do on the farm in the future to help my children. We're here today trying to demonstrate why this country is so great. Repairing a fall. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. Search and rescue teams continue their efforts today at the site of a collapsed condominium building in Surfside, Florida, near Miami. Florida officials said they're asking for an additional team from the federal government. Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava told reporters Tuesday that equipment is coming in from all over. They're out there with every resource that they need to ensure that they can search this area, they can sweep the mound with cameras, with dogs, with sonar, and additional heavy machinery that has come in to start to clear away the debris. Officials said the federal team would allow crews that have been working at the site for days to rotate out and be on hand if severe weather hits the area in coming days. The National Hurricane Center says two disorganized storm systems in the Atlantic have a chance of becoming tropical systems in the coming days, but it's unclear at this point whether they would pose a threat to the U.S. The House is expected to vote this week on whether to form a commission to investigate the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Monday introduced legislation that would create a select committee to probe the January 6th attack on the Capitol with an aide suggesting the speaker may include a Republican among her appointees. The House Rules Committee considered the legislation Monday night. The House will hold a procedural vote on the measure today, and a vote on the legislation itself is expected Wednesday. Pelosi's move to form a select 13-member committee comes one month after Senate Republicans blocked an effort to create an independent bipartisan commission. The panel will investigate the facts and causes of the assault that left five dead and nearly 140 officers attacked as they faced rioters armed with axe handles, bats, metal batons, wooden poles, hockey sticks, and other weapons. More than 100 people have died in Canada amid a record-breaking heat wave that smashed temperature records in parts of western North America. Police in Vancouver have responded to more than 130 sudden deaths since Friday. Most were from vulnerable populations like the elderly or people with underlying health conditions. Canada broke its temperature record for a third straight day on Tuesday, with 121-degree temperatures registered for Lytton, British Columbia. Kyle Britton is Alberta Bureau Chief for the Weather Network in Canada. He told Feature Story News that climate change's fingerprints are all over this heat wave. Because what we're, we're seeing is that they're just increasing in duration and severity. And so this is truly unprecedented. Of course, this is the result of a very anomalously strong high-pressure ridge over western Canada. Typically, uh, we don't see this type of extreme heat until a little bit later in the summertime. 
The U.S. Northwest has also seen record highs and a number of fatalities. Experts say climate change is expected to increase the frequency of extreme weather events such as heat waves. However, linking any single event to global warming is complicated. The California legislature is set to approve a budget tomorrow that would, among other things, expand Medi-Cal coverage to undocumented residents over age 50. Public News Service's Mike Clifford reports. The expansion would allocate up to $1.3 billion for the program. Jose Torres Casillas with the advocacy group Health Access predicts it will reduce suffering for many Californians. This is a groundbreaking thing. It'd be beginning May 1st, 2022. Rough estimates give it about 235000 that would be newly eligible for the benefit. Opponents of the change argue that taxpayer dollars would be better spent directly on U.S. citizens. Advocates of the expansion counter, the state already pays when undocumented folks end up in emergency rooms. In the past few years, California extended Medi-Cal to undocumented children and then to undocumented young adults. And that report from Mike Clifford, and I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Uh, Today, we're going to be focusing on what is happening to black and indigenous uh, farmers. We're going to spend the hour digging deep into what has been the history of land uh, dispossession and about the Biden administration's attempt uh, to get some money to the black farmers. And now there is a lawsuit that has blocked the distribution of this money. Now, black farmers have lost an average of 820 acres a day. An area the size of New York Central Park is wiped out every day. Black-owned cotton farms in the United States South have almost completely disappeared, withering away from 87,000 to just over 3,000 in the 1960s alone. Furthermore, the racial disparity in farm acreage dramatically increased in Mississippi from 1950 to 1964 when black farmers lost almost 800,000 acres of land, this according to the Census of Agriculture. This land loss is also a financial uh, loss, estimated to be about $3.7 billion to $6.6 billion in today's uh, dollars. And in 1965, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights exposed blatant and dramatic racial disparities in the level of federal investment uh, to farmers. The commission discovered that in a sample of counties across the U.S. South, the Farmers Home Administration distributed substantially larger loans for small and medium-sized white-owned farmers relative to net worth than it did for similarly-sized Black-owned farms. Let us go now um, to a clip on um, the state of black farmers. Uh, This is from CBS. 
The American Rescue Plan, which became law in March, was supposed to deliver billions of dollars in aid and loan forgiveness to the nation's underprivileged farmers. Instead, those funds are being held up by a federal lawsuit. The promise of aid that fails to materialize is all too familiar to many farmers of color, long subjected to discrimination in government programs. We went to Virginia to talk with a fourth-generation black farmer leading the call for change. John Boyd has been tilling this soil for the last three decades, land that's been in his family for a hundred years. My grandfather was able to raise 15 children on his farm. You say you're the classic case yes. of the black farmer. Classic case. Why? Many black farmers uh, were tied historically to the land, uh, either through uh, sharecropping or generational land. That's the way the blacks uh, did it, and, and we were old-school farmers. These are our tobacco-curing bonds. Boyd is president of the National Black Farmers Association, representing thousands of black farmers across the U.S. We farm with limited resources. Banks weren't lending us any money. USDA really dogged black farmers and poor processing time. We took 387 days to process a black farm loan request in, in less than 30 days to process a white farm loan request. In March, President Biden announced his plan to right that wrong, providing $4 billion in loan relief to socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers in his $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. This debt relief is designed to catch them up. We spoke to Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack in April about disparities in the last year alone. In the COVID relief packages that were announced prior to the rescue plan, uh, of those self-identified farmers who identified as white or black or, or Hispanic, black farmers received roughly $20 million in help through those COVID packages. White farmers received over five and a half for a period of time over the, over the decades able to fully utilize uh, the uh, full extent of USDA programs. Black farmers were not able to do that because of discrimination. But last week, a federal judge in Wisconsin halted those payments, saying the U.S. Department of Agriculture's use of race-based criteria in the administration of the program violates their right to equal protection under the law. It's one thing to help people because they themselves have been the victim of identifiable past discrimination. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, our special on what is happening with black farmers, but also farmers of color generally. I would now like to welcome our guest. First, I'd like to welcome John Zippert, the co-publisher of the Green County Democrat Weekly newspaper uh, based in Utah, Alabama. He recently retired after working for 50 years with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund at their Rural Training and Research Center near Epps, Alabama. He serves as the chairperson of the board of the Green County Health System, which includes a 20-bed hospital, a 60-bed nursing home, and a rural physician's clinic. He is actively involved with the Save Ourselves Movement for Justice and Democracy a statewide effort to help develop more humane and inclusive public policies. John Zippard, welcome. Good morning. Okay, good to, good to hear you. I'd also like to welcome uh, Lorette uh, Fischiano, Executive Director of the Rural Coalition, which has served as the voice of African-American, American Indian, Asian-American, Euro-American, and Latino farmers, 
farm workers and union communities, rural communities in the U.S., as well as indigenous and campesino groups in Mexico and beyond uh, this for the past four decades. Uh, Lorette Ficiano, welcome. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, I'd also like to welcome to our panel uh, Keisha Stokes, who is a senior supervising attorney with the Economic Justice Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Keisha, welcome. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Sure. Okay, so let's get into it here. We'll start with a bit of history. And, John, that means I'm going to start uh, with you in the intro. I spoke a little bit about the loss of land of black farmers in the South. You were based in the South. And uh, there's been a very ambiguous relationship, to say the least, uh, between uh, black people and the land in the South, given the history and legacy of slavery. Nevertheless, it's been an important uh, connection. And we know a lot of the skills that um, the Africans brought over with them from the continent were put to good use, making money, uh, put to use, making money for the slave owners. So, John, tell us a little bit about that history, the connectedness and the importance of black people and the land, particularly in the south of the United States. Yes, well, I think it's important for people to understand that 1920, which was 100 years ago, black people in the South owned 15 million acres of land. And that was land that they acquired coming out of slavery, coming out of the Civil War and in the Reconstruction period. So 1920 marked the high point of black land ownership and and black involvement in agriculture. And for the last century, uh, black people have been losing that uh, source of wealth, that source of family and multi-generational wealth. Uh, And by 1960, there were less than 6 million acres. And by the turn of the century, there were in 2000, there were there are somewhere between three and four million acres owned by black farmers, and there are probably 50,000 black farmers left. And and this, I think that the effort of the uh, in the American Rescue Plan by the Biden administration was in part to kind of address that, that century of discrimination and 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 uh, policy uh, outcomes which discriminated against black farmers and other people of color farmers, including Hispanic farmers, uh, indigenous farmers, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders. So, this really, this program of forgiving the debts was one effort to address, and the secretary has said this, Secretary Bilsack, really the accumulated history 
of discrimination. And these lawsuits really challenge uh, the the basic way of the government to address to redress and repair this whole history of discrimination. It's clear. It's there. The loss of land, the dispossession of farmers, people having to move away from the land, people struggling with uh, lower loans and loans made too late in the season and uh, all kinds of other instances of discrimination. And, and in our amicus brief that you're going to hear about in a minute, we cite all of those documents of the Civil Rights Commission starting in 1965 and, and, and coming through, uh, you know, the, 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 the lawsuits in the, in the 1990s and coming into the current situation. And the secretary himself admits that basically the monies, the, the, the Trump assistance for farmers for uh, loss of markets and the, the Trump assistance for the coronavirus basically went to white farmers and not to the black and other people of color farmers that we represent. So right. I, 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 I think the others on this panel have a, a, can really talk more to the specifics of our brief, but, um, yeah. And, I, and John, we're going to have time to dig, a bit deeper into what's actually in the brief and what's happening now. Um, so we will certainly be discussing that. But what I'd like to do is to have give us um, and, and go to you, Keisha, uh, so too, because the context here, it's interesting what, what John said, looking at the beginning of the rapid decline of the black loss of land in the South. And Keisha, just recently, we um, marked the, well, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the massacre uh, that happened, um, you know, in Oklahoma uh, against uh, black people. And we know that there was, during that whole period of the early uh, 1900s, there were a spate of these kinds of really terrorist attacks against uh, black uh, communities. And we also know that following the Civil War, when there was an attempt of white and black people to kind of organize together in a, a fusion movement, that whole movement was destroyed um, after Reconstruction was fundamentally destroyed by federal order, federal troops were brought out of the South. And then it seemed as though that exacerbated a reign of terror against black people. And I wonder, Akisha, your thoughts on the impact of that and um, the, the loss of um, land of, of black people. Uh, Keisha Stokes, who senior supervising attorney with the Economic Justice Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Keisha. Thank you, Margaret, for making that connection between race massacres and racial abuse and killings of black people and the situation that we see now 
um, with black farmers really facing the loss of existence. And I think what we know about those race massacres is that in many instances, as with the Greenwood, the Greenwood massacre, they were motivated by um, white residents feeling threatened by black success. And definitely um, farm ownership for black people and minorities, it is a way to build wealth in a family. It is a way to be independent as a business owner and entrepreneur. And so I think there's always been a tendency in the United States towards uh, resistance and backlash when minorities and particularly black people um, show an independent streak, and especially financial independence. And at the Southern Poverty Law Center, one of our main objectives is to eradicate poverty in the South. And what I've learned in working on this case is that many minority farmers and black farmers, these are people who put food on our tables, are really struggling financially and in poverty. They're having to make the decision of whether to feed their families or to service debt. Um, many of which were administered improperly at unfair terms, um, and they're not receiving the assistance from USDA that really is expected for all farmers. Right, and, and Lorette, um, bringing you into this discussion here, I mean, Keisha makes a, a strong case there, and also the tie-in with poverty. Uh, we also know that the really the flight of, of black people from some parts of the South um, following this kind of reign of terror, terrorist attacks, uh, where black people came to places like Los Angeles, to Detroit, um, to Harlem and, and New York City, some of the, the northern cities, that that also perhaps had um, played a role in some of the loss of land. But that's not the whole story, as you will uh, and, and everyone in this panel will, will make the case for that. And at the same time today, you see a resurgence. It seemed almost like a reverse um, migration, so to speak, of black people from urban areas uh, going back to the South or maybe even going to rural areas in the states where they are and trying to connect. Um, with farming and build a community of black farmers and really fight against the kind of uh, systemic and institutional racism that black farmers have suffered for so very long. Lorette, your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I think um, I'd like to start in Oklahoma, actually, if that's okay, because I think the points raised, um, you know, we spend a lot of time there with Oklahoma Black Historical Research Project, and um, the farmers there, and we have several of them that are included in this case, you know, what happened is actually many of um, the black farmers, they were pushed off the land in the east, and they came actually with the tribes, with the five tribes, the Choctaw and Chickasaw and the others that were pushed out of the southeast, and they, and they landed in Oklahoma, which is a place that has very, very poor land. You know, the Dust Bowl was the, the soil blowing down from the, you know, institution of monoculture practices in the Midwest. But they also built up this prosperous network 
when nobody was watching. And I think that's what happened in Tulsa, as you know, our colleagues there tell us, is all of a sudden they found black success. But there was also a connection to the black towns. And so based on the farm economy, they had built a whole um, sector of about 30 or 40 towns, and they were exporting things. And they had something called the Wewoka switch, like maybe you were trying to you know, ship animals or something else like that, and your, and your rail car would suddenly disappear and somebody would take it away. But, um, you know, it was, it was this long piece that we still see today is that the, the worrying thing was when um, black farmers and black communities gained power and, and when the farmers gained power. So now today, you know, we're seeing the, and the connection to land is very, very important. You know, we're now right now watching on the climate issue and, you know, we've been working on making sure people get their land titled because a lot of times what happens is the lawyers in a particular town are conflicted. And so they may already represent somebody who wants your, your land um, or wants you off your land. And so, you know, between that and the larger families, it's like to work out inheritance issues. And very often it's, you know, after somebody passes away that the land becomes most vulnerable and they're not able to keep it. And so we've been working on policies in all of these places. But what we also know is that there's a deep connection between poverty and land concentration. And right now, keeping every one of these farmers on the land is the major goal that we have. And also, you know, within the tribal communities also, because these are the people who know how to take care of the land. And so if we start having climate markets and everything with insecure land arrangements, you know, the, the land becomes profitable to a whole new group of people who have no interest in these farmers. So this kind of like setting the context, but also to always remember that, you know, especially in the South, that, that any of the wealth that was developed in some of the smaller cities was also coming from the farmers on the land. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. There's so many different connections you could draw, but, you know, and, 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 and we, we see these patterns today. Absolutely, Lorette, and I'm really glad you raised the issue of uh, what happened also with Indigenous people, because the context of all of this is the recognition, at least from what I've read from uh, your networks and others, of the recognition of whose land this really is in the beginning, right? And uh, just basically how what's, what's going to be happening now in terms of uh, making up for some of the past wrongs. Uh, Keisha, um, who is with the uh, is the senior supervising attorney with the Economic Justice Project, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Lorette Fischiano, executive director of the Rural Coalition, and John Zippert, who has a, a long time um, activist in all of these uh, areas, are going to stay with us. Our panelists will stay with us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to dig a, a bit more into why are some of the white farmers now objecting uh, to what Biden did um, with the, the money set aside for black farmers and how people are organizing to make sure that that historic uh, wrong has at least moving in the direction in, on the right side. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Oh, farmers. Bend this back in the sun all day. Oh, farmer, 
Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we're having a one-hour special on the crisis happening with farmers of color. And our guests are uh, Keisha Stoke-2, Loretta, Lorette uh, Fischiano, and John Zifford. They are going to return to speak with us, uh, but if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at so true radio and we're also nationwide and worldwide on soundcloud and today we'd like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners uh throughout um the south the southern states and particularly in the rural areas and internationally we'd like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners in australia let's give a shout out to australia today this is margaret prescott host of Sojourner Truth, and on our special today, our guests are Keisha Stoke-Tu, Senior Supervising Attorney with the Economic Justice Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, Lorette Fischiano, Executive Director of the Rural Coalition, John Zippard, um, who is a co-publisher of a weekly newspaper and uh, worked for 50 years with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives land assistance fund at their rural training and research center near alabama Uh, before we welcome our guests back let us go now to a clip also from uh cbs about the present situation with with black farmers Rick Eisenberg is the president of the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, the firm representing 12 white farmers across nine states that challenge the policy. So you don't argue that systemic racism has perhaps disadvantaged black farmers in the past. Certainly there have been some farmers who have been black farmers who have been discriminated against in the past. There was a lawsuit. The way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race and not to think that there is some way that we can balance the scales um, by discriminating just a little bit. The USDA isn't backing down, telling CBS News, we respectfully disagree with this temporary order and will continue to forcefully defend our ability to carry out this act of Congress and deliver debt relief to socially disadvantaged borrowers. I wasn't aware that um, some farmers weren't receiving the same as other farmers. Cheryl Ash and her husband James are plaintiffs in the suit. They breed hogs in Jasper, Missouri. They're only about four days old. I didn't know that existed, but I think it doesn't matter what color of skin you have. If you're a farmer, you should be able to qualify and and get those programs and those grants. Equality is best, especially from our government. All righty, and uh, so let us... Uh, uh, go to that kind of, we're getting that kind of pushback and, and reaction. And John, again, we'll start with you. The kind of pushback that we're seeing of people saying, well, this kind of thing is divisive and we can't just use race as a criteria 
for black farmers uh, getting this money, even though that's couched in saying that, well, everybody should be treated equally, but that certainly has not uh, been the case. And, and John, we see this kind of pushback and this kind of attack here, just as we see uh, happening now, even with all the criticism against critical race theory. Uh, basically, the, the underneath all of that is a pushback against teaching the true history of the United States, including what has happened uh, to black uh, farmers and saying, claiming somehow that that's divisive. And you put that together with the attack on voting rights, <laughs> which also would have a, a big impact on, on black farmers. So tell us a bit about this kind of pushback and the kind of fear from uh, white farmers and white people, John, that you all uh, have are experiencing now with opposition to this piece of legislation, but also what can be done about it? What do you think can be done so that the two sides, so to speak, is there any chance of, of some kind of coming together and uh, working across race to make sure that this discrimination against Black and Indigenous uh, Latinx uh, farmers don't continue? John Sifford. Well, I, I think you, you, you have to take the opposition to this in context and that some of the uh, these uh, uh, right-wing think tank legal organizations that are opposing this uh, are, are the same people who oppose voting rights, are the same people who, who have been involved for years in opposing any kind of uh, affirmative action, and and you heard the the farmer herself in Missouri saying, "Well, I wasn't aware of this problem. I didn't know there were uh, black farmers and Native American farmers who who had been discriminated against." And so these law firms, these right wing think tanks, have have gathered up some farmers who don't fully understand the picture and using them for their uh, um, for their political and ideological uh, crusade and one of the groups for instance is directly connected with Stephen Miller and Mark Meadows who you know worked uh, in the Trump administration for very negative policies. Um, what if we do have white farmers uh, in the Midwest and other parts of the country who are supporting uh, this lawsuit because they know and understand the history of this. And there are really this whole case and to me, uh, uh, really points out a question of whether the Congress of the United States, and this was passed in the American Rescue Act, and it was challenged in the Senate. There were three or four efforts to amend this section out of the bill, and it was kept in there. Uh, for the reason that it, it was justified by the 
long history of discrimination and the very specific discrimination during the coronavirus uh, pandemic against black and other people of color farmers. So uh, if this, if these groups, white farmer groups prevail, they are denying Congress and the government the right to develop remedies that assist the most disadvantaged, the poorest, and the people who have suffered the most from discrimination. And I think uh, uh, white people of goodwill would look at that uh, and say, no, that's not correct, and we need to change this around. We do need to balance the scales. This is one way to do that, one small way. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a little disturbing uh, that, that, and then I gather now there are 10 lawsuits against this. They're piling on against this. But I think this is all part of the reaction to any kind of program that really seeks to address these longstanding problems. I'll stop yeah. there. Right, and and Keisha, to you, because fill our listeners in on what really is is in this a law, this Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act that now has been blocked by a court. And as uh, John Zipper said, many other lawsuits kind of piling up, even if this one goes in the favor of the black farmers. We know that there's $8 billion in direct relief payments, right, to pay off outstanding USDA farm loans, and another $1 billion to fund to root out systemic racism. So tell us a bit about uh, this legislation that is being so vilified now in the court. Keisha. Thanks, Margaret. Um, there's so much misinformation about Section 1005 of the American Rescue Plan. Um, and I think that the biggest misinformation about it is that it's a racially exclusionary measure. And that's just not true um, in the plain language of the legislation and in the rulemaking from the USDA. Um, actually, the rule from the USDA is very inclusive. So it says that socially disadvantaged farmers who are eligible for debt relief under Section 1005 includes, but is not limited to, listed racial groups, including African Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic American um, farmers. Um, and the rule also says that if anyone who's not a member of this, these groups believes that the person is socially disadvantaged, and should be entitled to relief under Section 1005, then all the person needs to do is write a letter to the Secretary of USDA um, and make the case for why that person is entitled to relief. And so one concern for us is that um, the farmers, the white farmers who have been uh, identified by the think tanks um, to challenge Section 1005 have actually not taken advantage of the procedures that are part of the statute and the USDA's rules for how they should seek relief if they believe that they are entitled to it. It's not a racially exclusionary measure. Right, and as, as John said, you are getting uh, 
multiracial support and your pushback against this. I mean, I'm a great admirer and actually active with the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, and their approach definitely is one of fusion, of uh, bringing communities together. So I, I suppose we'll have to see how the farming community um, will, which historically has been so divided, uh, will be able to come together and stand with uh, farmers of color. And uh, Lorette, uh, bringing you into this um, discussion here, I mean, the recent discrimination against black and indigenous uh, farmers, you saw $9.2 billion in aid to farmers in 2020 under the Corona Food Assistance Program, less than 3% of that relief went to the category of producers defined by the USDA as being undisturbed by the federal farm program, and that includes farmers of, of color. So the impact you think that this particular uh, piece of legislation, if the, the, challenge, the challenges, I should say to them, in court failed, the benefits um, for uh, black farmers and other farmers of color, and what other programs or what else do you think uh, needs to happen? And, and Lorette, also, your thoughts on the fact that so many um, people of color now, uh, starting with black people, are beginning to move back into rural areas and, and move back to the South and are definitely interested in reclaiming family land and uh, fighting for the land because we do know that two places of, of uh, passing wealth on is home ownership and also land ownership. Lorette. Yes, and, you know, I'd like to start again with a little bit of historical lens. Um, you know, first sure. of all, remember that the whole voting rights movement and all of the civil rights movements often were led by groups like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and landowners who were not dependent on, you know, a white business owner for a job. And so it gave them more freedom to be organizing. You know, uh, you know, um, uh, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer and many other leaders were part of that movement. And so I think there was also the connection. It was some of um, the leadership on those issues that made these farmers threatened. Um, but then beyond that, um, if you look at kind of the antithesis of this whole definition, in 1987, and at that point, I used to work for the interfaith community um, until I joined Row Coalition in 1991. And, you know, we worked with all of the conferences of churches because there was a massive farm crisis. And this included all farmers. And so we worked very hard, and we always have um, also to help all of the farmers. And there were 87,000 foreclosure notices, and there was a court case to stop those, and the 1987 Ag Credit Act resolved that. So the definition came because we wanted to make sure that farmers who would be excluded from this relief and excluded from any avenue, that we made sure that USDA would recognize them, would offer the same aid. So we set up, like, target participation rates. And the definition of socially disadvantaged what it really says is it means somebody who is treated differently um, as a member of a group rather than their individual qualities. So like if somebody else wants to, you know, now get into the new one and say, I've been treated differently because they're seeing me as this rather than for my individual qualities, they can bring that evidence. Um, Asian Pacific farmers, important for California, 
are also, though, included in the definition. And so, um, you know, um, we've been working on behalf, and we're also, you know, we are supportive, additional relief for the smaller scale of the white farmers. But let's remember, and, you know, in the brief, Southern Poverty Law Center dealt with the whole county committee structure and, you know, the National Appeals Division and, you know, what happens if something goes wrong? And so I, the last thing I want to say is to think about the farmers and do, you know, all the white farmers receive the same treatment? So in our brief, you know, we have one farmer in Oklahoma um, who says, you know, he went in and he was in mediation for like a really long time. And he's a second generation farm. Far, well, he took over his family land and it actually goes back several generations he wanted to replace an old barn that's 100 years old. And suddenly they said, oh, well, we're appraising it again. And to release that loan lien, you need $30,000 more on this decrepit barn. And so there's all these issues of, like, the appraisers will come in and suddenly find something else you own. There's another black farmer in Oklahoma who's got his neighbor. Um, he's trying to get a new loan and start a farm. And his neighbor next door is occupying his land and planting it and counting federal benefits on that land. And the USDA office is saying, hey, you have to sign, if you want help, you've got to sign this lease, the certified lease with your neighbor so he can get benefits. And the farmer said, I didn't give him permission to farm on my land. And then they're also saying, well, you don't, you know, have the experience, even though he grew up on a farm. And I guess the last example is discrimination is still going on, and we don't think that, you know, I mean, white farmers need to ask themselves, are they receiving the same thing? One of our board members down in southeast Alabama, Mrs. Barbara Shipman, is a Gulf War veteran. She's a fifth-generation black farmer, and she goes and finds the returning veterans who come from farm families and tries to connect them back to farming. And this one farmer went in by themselves. She usually goes to the office. And said, you know, I grew up on the farm. I want to get a loan. And the person in the office threw his folder back at his head and said, don't you come in here until you have documents of three years of experience. And we don't think also, we think, you know, in the case of a white farmer, oftentimes they would help to say, how do you document that experience? So it's like those are the kinds of things that really show what is actually happening. And, yeah, sorry for talking so much, but it's just I think it's really important to see, like, how does this really manifest itself? And that's what we're fighting against because, you know, those farmers are on the brink now because of these practices, because there's no other avenue to solve them, and because they have much smaller pieces of land, they can't get into the full array of federal programs so the only way to help them is through this debt relief, and that's why Congress, you know, and Reverend Warnock and uh, um, Chairman Scott, D David Scott, and, and, and the committees work together for this type of aid. Right, and, and Cory Booker was also involved with that. What yeah, we're going to do yeah. now, just, just looking at the clock, I realize that we just have time for a final round and some final thoughts. Let's do a short clip. Uh, again from CBS, and then we'll focus in on what is it that people could do, how uh, farmers are pushing back, and, and what people can do to support their efforts. Let's go to that clip now. At the turn of the last century, there were nearly one million black farmers in America. The USDA now says there are only 45,000 in a country of three million farmers and less than 40% of them, 17,000, qualify for assistance. 
At the bottom, they would use old rocks from the farm. For Boyd, those numbers showcase decades of discrimination and disparity that he pledges he will fight to remedy. Well, let me say this. Uh, I'm going to die a farmer. I'm very optimistic about the future, but I want people to know that uh, it's not going to happen by itself. Well, the Department of Agriculture is going to answer the suit. They are uh, essentially advising borrowers to, to just move forward with their claims. But as we speak, there are some five other lawsuits that are already coming down the pike. Look, the big question here is whether or not these black farmers, farmers of color, should have a remedy for those years, decades of discrimination that the USDA acknowledges. There have been lawsuits, uh, but oftentimes they aren't fully paid out. All righty. So the question then is, should there be a remedy? What should it look like? What should people who are listening to this show across the country and even in other parts of the world, what should they do uh, to support the efforts of uh, people like yourselves working on this issue and for this injustice to be remedied? Uh, John Deferred, let's start with you. Uh, just uh, We just have r- really about four minutes between the three of you uh, to give your final thoughts. John. Well, we need the support of everyone who believes that that this is a good policy. I I would suggest they go to the websites of the Rural Coalition, the Federation, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Intertribal Agriculture Council. They, they, They can... They go to those websites. They can get a copy of this amicus brief. They can learn about what these organizations do. All of them need support. I think individually people can follow this case and and write letters to the editor of their uh, local newspaper in support. They can uh, speak out when people say, oh, this seems to be discriminatory against white farmers. No, it isn't, and this is why. So that's why we came on your program, Margaret. We we appreciate your giving us this chance, and people can learn, learn, learn need to learn more about this issue and, and support us in this effort. Absolutely. And uh, Keisha, let's get your uh, final thoughts. Keisha with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thanks, Margaret. Like John said, we really want everybody's help in getting the word out about Section 1005 and the needs of minority farmers. I think as black people, many of us have the experience of somebody saying or doing something racially insensitive. And if we address what happened, then the response often is, well, I don't see color. And that's what these organizations who are bringing these cases want the government to do, not see color. And we know that that's not equitable. Minority farmers, especially black farmers, have been discriminated against and forced out of business for decades. And this is an effort to right the wrongs, especially during during the context of the COVID pandemic, and make sure that minority farms continue to be viable in this country. Right. And uh, Lorette Fischiano, Executive Director of the Rural Coalition, your final thoughts. 
Thanks very much. Um, first of all, I want to say that the Rural Coalition's website is www.ruralco.org, and I will try and make sure that we link, uh, you know, that we give also the links to the other websites, because the other thing that all the groups are going to need, and especially Southern Poverty Law Center, is funds to do what needs to be done on this case. And, and that's going to be important, getting the word out, letters to the editor, and also to stay in touch for future actions. There's a place where individuals can sign up for alerts, and we w- we're working all together. So, you know, that and then even showing up in some of the courts. And then the other thing is to know that the farmers who are waiting for this relief, they really, really need help right away. And we don't know how soon this is going to come. So we want them to be in touch with us at www.ruralcode.org and the Federation and the other organizations to make sure they make plans to be able to survive because we want to keep them all on the land while this thing works out in the courts. Right. Well, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there, Keisha. So to um, Lorette Officiano, John Zippert, but I'd like to just throw down a challenge. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a, a, a part, a six-part series of conversations in southern Illinois as part of an urban-rural conversation. I really would like to continue that urban-rural conversation. I think is so important uh, with a specific focus on what's happening with farmers of color. So please give that some thought because we'll be back in touch with you to see if we can get a series organized where we can go a bit deeper in it on the legal fights, but also the impact of global warming, uh, climate justice, and how the methods of of black farming, the um, healing power of working on the land, and there's so much more to discuss. But I really appreciate you all continuing to send me information. Let's stay in touch and see if we could really deepen and further these uh, conversations. Uh, John, so appreciate you and Keisha and Lorette. Thank you for joining us. All righty. Thank you so much. Um, okay, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our sister producer, uh, Romero Alfunes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1 800 735 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all remember to please stay safe. My time is cut.